We are live in the Brigino Baseball Clubhouse at 67 East 11th Street in the landmark Cast Iron Building, Greenwich Village, City of New York. We start tonight as we always do. To those of you who are here for the first time, welcome. To those who have been here before, welcome home. Tonight's book, the only rule is it has to work. The publisher, Henry Holt and Company, the authors, Ben Lindbergh and Sam Miller. Please join me as we welcome Ben Lindbergh to the clubhouse. Thank you. Happy to be here. Uh, thank you. Thanks so much for coming, Ben. And uh, the book is terrific. I have to say, I was, uh, uh, I'm not fully in the sabermetric camp, so I didn't know what to expect, but uh, I really enjoyed this. You, you and, uh, and Sam are terrific writers, and thank it, you. it was such an easy book to read. And I, I really, so congratulations on that. I appreciate it. Yeah, we set out for it to be sort of a, a stats, sabermetric style book. And there's some of it in there, obviously. But I think it turned out to be not as much that as we had expected, in part because the season didn't always go the way we had expected. So the plan often had to be changed on the fly. And I think the book itself is a lot different uh, from the one that was in our proposal but the proposal got us a deal, and then uh, <laughs> there was nothing our editor could do about it. So, uh, and apparently he's here tonight. Yes, sorry, sorry, Paul. <laughs> um, but I hope it worked out for the better and will be accessible to people who are not hardcore numbers people. Absolutely, it, it, I, I feel it, it definitely is. So to anybody listening, please, if you're not a hardcore numbers person, I know if you listen to Ben's podcast, you probably are, but if you listen to this, you may not be. You don't need to be for this book. and. Uh, I guess just to get us going, uh, how did the book project actually come about? Uh, so it goes back a few years. Sam and I were interviewing Dan Evans, who's the former GM of the Dodgers, and he was trying to revive a, a defunct independent league called the Northern League, which was around for many years, but as many independent leagues do, it, felt it folded at some point. And so he was trying to bring it back, and he was looking for people to take franchises, and Sam and I just sort of jokingly said, we'll take one if you're just handing out baseball teams. And we were kidding as we said it, but then when we said it out loud, it sounded like a really fun project if anyone would actually let us do it. And he didn't dismiss the idea, which kind of, you know, gave us some encouragement. And then his league didn't end up getting up off the ground, so a couple of years went by, and every year it, it seemed less realistic. Uh, but we never really forgot about it because it just seemed like it would be such a fun project. And then. On another episode, years later, we mentioned that we had never been to an independent league baseball game somehow, and the media relations and broadcaster person for the Stompers, who was a listener, emailed Sam and said, why don't you come out to a game? I know you're in the area. The Sonoma Stompers are in Sonoma, about an hour and a half away from Sam. So Sam went out there, and it seemed like the perfect place to do it, the perfect people and you know a nice place to spend the summer. Uh, and you know they were on board because they just need publicity and promotion at that level. They don't have any sort of infrastructure. They don't have anyone to run the baseball operations department. So it's just sort of you know hot dogs and t-shirts and just trying to make sure that they can pay the players the next time that the, the paychecks are due. So they were happy to have us take over that that side of the operation. Great. And as before we get into into everything that happened with the ball club that year. Mm -hmm. uh, the actual book with two authors, uh, you wrote, you, you, you alternated, alternated with chapters. Yeah. You got the odd numbers, I guess. You got the even numbers. Yeah. Uh, how, how did that process work? 
Yeah, we weren't sure what to do. We weren't sure whether we'd just do like a first-person plural thing and have everything be we, but it, it seemed like it wouldn't work that well if we did that because we weren't always in the same place and, you know, we were off doing our own thing and each of us was seeing our own sort of side of the season. And so we decided to alternate and I think it worked out well because, you know, it's sort of two distinctive voices and hopefully they complement each other and kind of give you two perspectives on the season. Um, I hope it's not too jarring to go back and forth. So the writing was, you know, maybe a little complicated just because uh, I had to know what Sam was doing and he had to know what I was doing whenever we were writing something. And, you know, the revisions was just sort of eliminating all of these duplicate things we had put in there, just, you know, telling the same stories and that sort of thing. So I hope it worked out for the best. It worked out okay on our, on our end, but it was just kind of, you know, a way to get as much of the season as we could into the book. Yeah, no, it, it flowed very well, and I guess kudos to your editor, who uh, probably yes. was insane trying to do that. But, uh, <laughs> yes. The whole process was just very compressed because, you know, we wanted to get the book out this spring uh, instead of waiting for 2017, and we couldn't really start until the season was over, which was August 31st. So, you know, we started like the first week of September, and I was moving back home, and uh, you know, that was when Paul actually got our first sample chapter, and so it was just, you know, the draft was due December 15th, I think, so it was like two and a half months, write a book, um, and then, you know, another two months of just revising it and rewriting it, but it was very compressed, um, and, you know, the website I was writing for stopped existing at that time, which was <laughs> a good, good timing for me if that had to happen at some point. Um, so, you know, it, I think it just, we were constantly on this deadline and I think it helped focus us and, and get it done quickly. And I don't want you to speak, uh, to feel that you have to speak for Sam at any point, but there is one area I want to get to later. I'm, I'm going to ask okay. you specifically about something that okay. relates to Sam, but okay. just to get us going, uh, if you could talk a little bit, and I think some of this audience will understand it in depth and some may not because it's a focal point of your book, uh, spreadsheets. Mm -hmm. If you could just give us a little bit about, I found it fascinating, but if you could just talk a little bit about that. Yeah, well, we allowed ourselves one day to celebrate that we were actually doing this, that we had gotten a book deal, and then the next day was just sort of sheer terror and questioning why we had done this, because uh, you know we didn't know any players. I mean, we knew major league players, we knew minor league players, we didn't know anyone who would want to play for the Sonoma Stompers. So we had to figure out a way around that. And Sam and I didn't have the network of contacts. You know, we hadn't been in the game for years. We hadn't played with anyone we could call up and say, come join our team. So the only resource we could really draw on was, you know, our statistical knowledge and our contacts in the sabermetric community. And so we thought that we could identify some players and sort of narrow down this list from, you know, everyone in the world to the 22 players that we were gonna sign by looking at their college stats and trying to find guys who had succeeded at that level and who we thought would succeed at this level but hadn't been drafted by a major league team for whatever reason they were too small or they didn't throw hard enough or you know they just didn't have the typical athlete's body whatever it was and so we were able to just sort of you know sort these names and these stats and try to adjust them to figure out you know this is a division 1 player and this is a division 3 player and this is how you can compare them on sort of a same playing field. And so it was uh, difficult and kind of complicated, but at the end of it, we had a team. Uh, so this was sort of, you know, our money ball approach to, to building this team. Well, there's some great stories in here about the spreadsheet, so I, <laughs> I, I love that. Yeah. And uh, 
I'm going to get to a couple of names, but the first name I want to get to is, uh, and I see you're not wearing them today, but uh, Corduroy Crew. <laughs> yes, right. Can you just talk about that a little bit? Yeah, Sam and I wore corduroys on the same day. We wore the same outfit unintentionally uh, without coordinating. We just happened to coordinate. Um, and we wore those outfits to the tryout, and everyone sort of saw us. That was the first time I had been there. That was the first look everyone got at us, and we were you know, wearing these color-coordinated outfits as if it was our uniform, like the, ner the nerd outfit or something. And uh, for the rest of the season, we were kind of known as the corduroy crew, and that sort of extended to our network of scouts, too. And so you know, they would hear the other team kind of you know, muttering about the corduroy people at the ballpark every day. Uh, so that was unintentional and sort of regrettable, but probably probably good for the book. Yeah. <laughs> there, and there are some great names and great stories. So what I like to do is just uh, throw out a name and let sure. you speak about them for uh, okay. whatever comes to your mind and just let kind of let people know who these, these guys are. Mm -hmm. And I hope I pronounce it correctly, but uh, Theo Fightmaster. Yes, yeah, you need to pronounce that name correctly. Yeah. <laughs> That's his real name. Uh, yeah, that is the general manager of the Stompers, so he was kind of the one we were working with most closely from day to day, and he became a good friend of ours, and he's, you know, just a, a big guy, and despite the, the martial name, he's a very gentle-hearted person and very funny and great to work with, and he just had his hands full 24-7, and he was just trying to make sure this team would exist and that there were enough hot dogs at the concession stand and so he was really happy to have us and he was just sort of you know he was backing us up throughout the season or or not backing us up at times and so he was just a, an integral part of the process we couldn't have done it without him and he became a really close collaborator and friend another uh, great name uh, not some of these names are right up there with van lingle mungo <laughs> yeah. uh, and this i, I know I'm, I'm not going to pronounce correctly but uh Feyland lantini yeah, Feylant. We just call him Fey because it was easier. Uh, his former teammates used to call him Ferrari Lamborghini because uh, it sounds that way. Yeah, so he was our manager and a player manager, and we just sort of had to hope for the best with him because we couldn't create a spreadsheet to find coaches or managers, and this was the area where our lack of context kind of came back to bite us because you know we didn't have anyone to draw on really with baseball experience, and so. He was from Sonoma, and so he was kind of the hometown kid or hometown 37-year-old, and <laughs> he was a center fielder, and he had been in the Atlantic League the previous year, which is the highest level independent league, and so we thought if we could convince him to come to this lower level league, he would be terrific. He'd be a superior player, and we'd get him on this cheap salary because there's kind of a loophole in the league with the, the manager salary. So that's sort of why we signed him, and we hoped for the best. He had never managed before, and of course he had never been in this sort of situation before with you know two stat heads in the dugout every day. So we just had to hope that he would be okay with that and we you know, told him how it would work coming into the season, but it was really hard I think to exactly explain how it would work. We didn't know at that point. So as we got into the season, there was some conflict and some confrontation <laughs> and I won't give away how it ends, but that becomes a, a big part of the, the first half of the book. Some conflict is a bit of an understatement. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, no, those are great stories. Yeah. So the general manager is Theo Fightmaster, and the manager is Fellant Lantini. Yes. These, these, these are perfect names. Yeah. We yeah. couldn't have made up better names. No. Uh, there's a certain name I really want to get to, but before we do, 
two guys I, I'd like you to speak about a little because uh, I found them their stories very interesting. Uh, Taylor Eads, Taylor Eads. Yeah, so Taylor uh, was a college senior. He graduated, or he finished his playing career at least, and he was sort of one of the top names on the spreadsheet uh, because he had batted 538 as a senior in college um, and had done really well as a junior too, and he didn't get drafted, and it was sort of a mystery to us why he didn't get drafted, and he was doing some workouts with teams, and you know, I felt like we were going to lose him, someone was going to sign him, and so I really wanted to sign him as soon as we could. But we had to wait a while and wait a while for a spot to be open, and, uh, you know, he was in New Orleans and Hurricane Katrina and just sort of had this tortured family history and was a really nice guy and a leader on his team and, you know, just seemed like a great character guy and called everyone sir and yes sir and no sir. And so eventually we did succeed in signing him, and there was... Uh, sort of conflict over that too because he was a rookie and he was unproven and so in baseball there's this sort of Darwinian competition for roster spots where you know if a new player comes in then an old player has to go out and so veterans I think kind of have a built-in bias against rookies just for that reason and they felt like they'd earned their place and they'd proven that they belonged in pro ball and here was this guy who was just on a spreadsheet and had never been in pro ball before and so you know, he kind of got branded as the, the spreadsheet guy, uh, which is not the best reputation to have if you're a player. So that was also sort of a, a second half storyline, and I won't give away exactly how he did either for the sake of people who haven't read all the book yet, but he's definitely a, a core part of the story. And just, uh, if you could just speak a little bit uh, in general about, because if people who only follow the major leagues won't understand the first half, second half. Uh, yeah, so it was a split season, uh, so which is similar to the 1981 Major League season when there was a strike, and they just sort of played two separate halves, and there were champions of each half, and the champion of the first half plays the champion of the second half, unless they're the same, and then you just win. So, uh, <laughs> so it was a strange thing, because you, know, you build up to this kind of climax moment of the first half, and then you start over again, um, and our two halves went very, very differently. So we kind of got uh, best, uh, best and worst of uh, the worlds, I suppose. And another name, uh, Isaac Wenrick. Wenrick. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So he was our catcher, and he was this, you know, big, hairy, loud guy, and uh, <laughs> we were kind of intimidated. You know, how is he going to react to these nerds being in the clubhouse? And he was great in the end. He became a real leader, and he totally embraced me and Sam. And, you know, embraced everyone and, you know, he was kind of like a foul-mouthed, you know, jokester type, but heart of gold also. Um, and he, uh, you know, became a team leader and was one of the best players on the team. And then after the season, this is not in the book, he almost died. Uh, he had a heart attack uh, just as he was coaching a kid um, just in a baseball practice session. And he would have died except this 13-year-old knew CPR and uh, there was a paramedic pretty nearby in an ambulance that just happened to be close enough. So it was like, you know, one of those Widowmaker just total blockages. Um, and he's okay. And now he's with his Frontier League team and just playing as if nothing happened. Uh, but uh, yeah, but it kind of, you know, put the rest of it in perspective because yeah. he's this 25, 26 year old guy and, you know, probably not gonna make it to the majors, but really loves baseball and loves playing. And we were sort of thinking, you know, why is he gonna continue with this? Doesn't he realize He's probably not going to make it. 
but you know when something like that happens, it's just hey, whatever you want to do is probably fine <laughs> as long as you're enjoying yourself. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, before we get to the last name that I want to ask, and then we'll get into a few things, but I want to open up a Q and A. Mm -hmm. uh, but if you could speak a little bit about Yoshi. Mm -hmm. So Yoshi was uh, he started the season as the bench coach and. Like I, I guess the night before spring training or the night before opening day he came up to me and Sam and he told us that he wanted to know all about statistics and he loves statistics and he wants to apply statistics and he wanted us to teach him statistics and we just wanted to fire our manager right then and there and hire him. <laughs> um, but he was, you know, kind of a disciplinarian, like he has a team in the California Winter League and he just works them all day and night. Um, and but he's you know also just a really good guy and a smart guy and so uh, again I'm trying to steer clear of spoilers to some extent but <laughs> our relationship with him evolved uh, a lot over the season he was kind of you know a peripheral character early on but then he takes on an added importance and we, we got to work with him much more closely and this name uh, the last direct name I want to bring up you can get into the spoiler part of it because I think people know it. Mm -hmm. uh, Sean Conroy. Yeah, I, I don't know what the book would be without Sean. We, uh, we really lucked out in a lot of ways getting him. He was uh, a Division three pitcher uh, in an upstate New York engineering school, RPI, and had been dominant in college, but you know he was a side armor and he didn't throw that hard um, and no one had drafted him. I don't think anyone had even scouted him and so we signed him sight unseen and he showed up and not only he, was he one of the best pitchers in the league, which would have been plenty for us, but he was gay and open about it and became the first openly gay active professional baseball player in history. And so that really added a, a dimension to the story and the season that we had never anticipated. His first start, the scorecard for that night, ended up in Cooperstown, which was really cool. We never imagined anything we did would get to the Hall of Fame. Uh, and so, you know, he's a big part of the story, both because we were trying to decide how to use him as a starter, as a closer. He had been both in college, and that was kind of a back and forth, but also just the sort of social aspect of it and how would the clubhouse react and would the players embrace him. And as it turned out, they did, and it went off wonderfully. And, you know, guys, I think we're of watching what they said for a little while around him they weren't totally sure how to act and what they could and couldn't say but he wanted them to be able to say anything he wanted to be part of the team and the way the clubhouse works is that just anyone you know you get mocked for whatever is your most obvious characteristic if you're short or if you're from a certain place or whatever it is you get picked on for that thing and so he didn't want people to you know think that they couldn't make a joke around him, even though it's the sort of joke that would, you know, get you sued in some other workplace. <laughs> in baseball, if people are making that jokes, it's a sign of acceptance, sort of. And so he established himself as one of the best pitchers in the league first, and then that became part of his identity, too. And so uh, that really added something to the season and, and the book that we had never planned. Yeah, I have to imagine on everything that you thought about that could happen when this project starts, that probably was not on the list of things you no, thought about. No, yeah. And if you could just take us back to that moment when you and Sam mm -hmm. hear about this, what did, what did you and Sam say to each other? Well, I mean, as people who were writing a book, we were happy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, we kind of just got a more interesting story to tell just on one level, um, but we were also really 
pleased and proud that we had played any part of this, even though it was totally unintentional and accidental on our part. If, if we had known, we would have been happy to do it, but we didn't know, so we can't take credit for that. But just to, to be there and to see it, you know, we had hoped to find out about how clubhouses work and how those personalities fit together and all that, and this gave us a, a better look at that than we had ever hoped to get. So we just hoped it would go smoothly, and we hoped we could help him in any way that, that we could, and as it turned out, he didn't really need our help. He just, he had been used to this on the teams he had played with in high school and college, and so he knew exactly what to do, and we were just sort of along as observers. What is he doing now? He will be back with the Stompers in about a week, um, and I think he's good enough to, to have a shot at a higher level, so I hope he's not there long. Great. Mm -hmm. I have plenty of uh, other questions, but I'd like to uh, turn it over to the audience to see uh, if anyone wants to lead off. My only request is uh, we do have a time constraint with the podcast and with, uh, with Ben's time, so if you have a question, please have a question mark at the end of it. We don't really have like time for like a long thing about your thoughts about sabermetrics for a few paragraphs. Uh, anybody want to lead off with a question? Hope I didn't intimidate everyone from that. Uh, ben, I listen to your podcast all the time. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, that was really tough because even with the college players we signed, you know, a college player might get 150 at-bats in a season or something, and so we had to make these conclusions based on much smaller samples than we are usually comfortable with, and then we had about a week of spring training, which is, you know, nothing, uh, and we had never seen these players before, so, and then the season itself was only 78 games, so it was really difficult, and we tried to focus on things that do become meaningful pretty quickly. Um, you know, when we wanted to decide how to position the defenders against certain batters, you can kind of tell if someone's a pull hitter pretty quickly. And so we were able to wait a little while and then in the second half of the season really start implementing some things that we couldn't early on. But it was tough because we had no data at our disposal at first, really. It was, you know, Sam and I are used to just having everything, just how hard every ball is hit and how much spin every pitch has and just this incredible wealth of information and it was like going back in time a few decades uh, and just you know having to generate our own information whether it was with the, the pitch FX system that we set up in the park or this scouting network that we created and then having to figure out how to have the video camera work and how to edit the video and just how to have a big enough battery for the camera and just all these things that we had never really considered um, kind of gave us a new appreciation for how hard it is just to generate that data, let alone, you know, do something with it. Um, so one thing I'm curious about, by the way, love the podcast. Thank you. <laughs> um, I, uh, one thing I'm curious about is whether you see um, progress or sort of experiments in baseball happening more at the uh, independent league lower level and trickling up or happening at the major league level and trickling down. Uh, I guess bottom up more because that's why we wanted to do it. You know, we couldn't have done anything that we did in affiliated ball really at, at any level if we had found a team to let us take over. I mean, in the minor league system, you can't, you know, you wouldn't have two writers come in signing players or, or doing anything unorthodox. And so we wanted to do this in indie ball because there were fewer constraints and there was no media pressure and the players weren't making that much money and they weren't so close to the majors that they wouldn't want to risk changing anything. And so it seemed like the perfect laboratory environment for this sort of experiment. But 
I think even in affiliated ball, when a team wants to try something new, they tend to try it out at the lower levels. You know, some teams have tried like a tandem starter system where you have two starters going a few innings instead of one guy going several innings. And, you know, having those philosophies about your approach at the plate or whatever it is, if you can kind of get the players started young and then have them work on that all the way up, it seems to work a lot better than, you know, if they're already there and they're established and they're celebrities and then you tell them to change. So I think it's it's generally, it works best if you start on the farm system. How much did you struggle with in your mind between, I'm writing a book and this is part of the book experience and this is just so awesome writing this <laughs> I'm happy to remember, like, oh, i got to remember this later for the book. For yeah. I'm writing something about the, the Papa John's advertising campaign right now, so you'll see you soon. Um, but uh, yeah, that was tough because uh, I didn't want to be buried in a notebook the whole time. You know, I didn't want the players to be thinking of us as writers or outsiders, and so it was kind of you know keeping mental notes and then jotting things down after you got home from the ballpark, that sort of thing. Um, but it was, it was strange because it was, you know, you wanted to help the team do well. We sort of had, you know, we had our team selves and our book writing selves. And so not everything that was great for the team was great for the book. And so other things, you know, whenever we had difficulties, uh, we were worried about what it would mean for the book and whether we'd be able to pull off this project. And I think in the end, a lot of the setbacks turned out to be good book material, but it was hard to see that at the time, you know, we felt frustrated and worried that we were blowing it for the first half of the season or so. Um, so, you know, we wanted everyone to be aware that we were writing a book, and they all were, um, but we didn't want to remind them of that that often because we wanted them to act natural around us and, you know, not think of us as writers, but think of us as part of the team. So that was sort of a, a tough thing to do. Two guys in corduroy pants, why would they think you <laughs> yeah, were? Yeah, right. <laughs> About the book, no, not specifically. Uh, and we didn't always bring up the book, right? <laughs> it was enough to call someone, you know, just make a cold call and say, come across the country to play for this team you've never heard of. Uh, so to add the book, and we're reporters also on top of that, would have been probably bad. Um, so we did, if there were players we thought would be receptive to it. And, and in those cases, we tried to sell it as, you know, you'll get exposure, you'll be in a book, and we know scouts, and we can recommend you to people and that sort of thing. So we did do some of that, but it was hard. You know, we definitely didn't get everyone we wanted to get just because, especially as the season went on and there were fewer games remaining and it was, you know, come across the country and some people had summer jobs already or whatever it was, they had prior commitments. And so you couldn't just call up anyone and say, come play and have an automatic yes, uh, especially because the pay is terrible at that level and you know you have to live with a host family and that's kind of how you reduce the expenses and all of that. So a lot of players were super excited and said yes right away, but we definitely had to go down the list sometimes. Uh, in a prior life, I was a sports agent, so I'm familiar with yes. a lot of this, but if you could just let, uh, let the folks know a little bit about what the pay is at that level. Uh, there is a budget of $15,000 a month for the entire team, uh, and it's a 22-man roster, so you can do the math. Um, and obviously the veterans get more, returning players get more, rookies get less, but no one gets 
enough. You know, no one gets paid much, and they don't have many expenses because their housing is taken care of, and a lot of times their transportation, their host family will drive them around and cook the meals, and uh, some of our players got to live with host families who were professional caterers and chefs, so they ate <laughs> really well all summer. Um, but it's not a money-making enterprise, and it wasn't for the Stompers either. You know, they're not making, they're not really exploiting the players. They're sort of, you know, they like baseball and the players like baseball, and they're kind of each giving each other a, an outlet for that without anyone profiting from it in most cases. Right. Yeah. Uh, so you came from a very Yeah. Team chemistry or also in addition sort of not looking at them as spreadsheets like you would like fantasy players but mm -hmm. actual personalities. Yeah, I mean we definitely got to know them all really well and so that made it much harder when you had to make a change, which was something that we anticipated coming in. We kind of you know, we'd all played fantasy baseball and it's just you can just click to add or drop and that's it. Um, but in this case you have to go in a room and sit this person down and tell them that you don't think they're good enough at baseball and they have to go home now. Uh, so that was really uncomfortable and painful. And so we wanted to avoid that wherever we could. And we probably avoided it at times when we shouldn't have avoided it just because it was so terrible to do. Um, but that's part of it. And then, yeah, I mean, there were times when, because of the small samples we were talking about earlier, we kind of had to defer to people who had more experienced eyes in evaluating talent just because, you know, when the stats aren't telling you that much because you don't have that much information, you have to go with the experienced player evaluator who maybe isn't even looking at the stats but just likes what he sees. And so there was a time earlier in the season when I wanted to cut a player because, you know, his college stats weren't that great and we weren't that impressed and he hadn't started that well and we just didn't see any hope for him to be much better and I thought we could find better guys from the spreadsheet to take his place and our manager really pushed for him and said you know I know his background in baseball and I know his coach and his coach recommends him and I like what I see and I've been watching his batting practices and it looks like he's about to break out and none of this was anything samurai could pick up on but we kept him and the next night he hit a home run and then he became one of the best hitters on the team and we would have been stupid if we had gotten rid of him so it saved us from making a mistake there. So we were definitely trying to be aware of our, our weaknesses. How, how would you compare the level of play in the league that you were in with the, for example, the Atlantic League? It's a lot lower than the Atlantic League, which is close to AAA level almost. There are a lot of guys who were recently in the majors or maybe even about to be in the majors in the Atlantic League. So as close as we could tell, this was about A ball. Um, so the average age was something like 24, 25. Uh, we had the youngest team in the league because we were signing all these spreadsheet people. Um, but it kind of ranged from just people who were right out of college, had just graduated, to people in their mid-30s, late-30s who were just kicking around. And Higher than rookie Yeah, yeah. And lots of players with affiliated experience who had you know, been in a system. We signed a guy who had just been released from high A in the giant system. So a lot of players go back and forth at that level. So they definitely could have competed if someone had given them a shot, but maybe no one would give them a shot because they didn't think they could rise above that level. So that was the way it worked. How did injuries fit into cybermetrics and fit into a small season? Yeah, 
we were lucky. We, yeah, for us, they didn't very much. We didn't have any serious injuries. We had uh, just a couple muscle strains and rolled ankles and that sort of thing, but nothing that sidelined anyone that much. And that wasn't because of anything we did. We just got lucky. And uh, I think Billy Bean has said that you know injuries are the new money ball or the biggest inefficiency in baseball now. If you can figure out injuries, then you can save millions, hundreds of millions of dollars and you know gain dozens of wins if you could do that. And I think teams are getting better at it in some respects, but no one has figured that out. And so if anyone could, I mean, there are a lot of teams doing really advanced research and you know hiring people so that they get to apply those lessons instead of anyone else. Um, but it's, a, it's an area where some team could really get an advantage if they could figure it out. Were you surprised at all by who ended up being better work than called up, called up from uh, Civic Association versus the players that you guys thought were really the best and had the most potential? Um, and then if you could speak to maybe also your role in helping people get called up. Yeah, I don't think anyone who was signed surprised us, really. We thought they all deserved that shot. There were players who weren't signed that we thought also deserved that shot. So, yeah, I mean, it is it is a pretty inefficient system, and if you don't know anyone, then it's hard because, you know, a manager at the next level up will call his friend at the lower level and say, do you like anyone? You know, we need to fill this spot, and then you have to get that recommendation, and if you don't, then you won't get a chance. So uh, there were definitely players that we think could get signed. One of the players we signed is in a higher level league this season. Uh, and we hope that will be true for a couple others who are returning to the Stompers. And we were trying, we were doing everything we could, um, not only to get our own players jobs, but to get rid of the players we didn't want to face anymore. Uh, there were some really good players who were just wearing us out, and we were trying to like, you know, talk to our contacts in baseball and say, please sign this person. <laughs> uh, and that happened in one case, which was, which was cool. Um, so yeah, we were just trying to use all the information and all the contacts at our disposal. So uh, that worked out well in a couple cases. Uh, I don't know whether having this on my resume would help or not. <laughs> it depends, depends if you've read the book. But um, I was uh, I was an intern with the Yankees before this, before I was really a writer, and that was kind of what I wanted to do at the time. And I happened to be there in 2009 when they won the World Series, and so I got to you know be in the clubhouse after the game that that day and ride in the parade and all of that. So I kind of got a glimpse of that. Um, but you know my internship ended, and I didn't really feel like I wanted to keep doing that. There are a lot of just early 20-somethings who kind of go from one internship to another, and they hope that eventually they'll catch on. But you know, I was working with people from MIT and NASA and just computer science geniuses and math geniuses, and I realized that I couldn't compete or didn't want to compete with those guys in, in that area. So I thought just having been an English major, I'd probably be better off just <laughs> writing and editing. Uh, and I think that has worked out well for me. So no, I don't think anyone will be offering a job, but uh, if they did, I, I would have a hard time accepting that. So I'm gonna ask a follow-up to that in a way. Mm -hmm. And I mentioned it earlier that I was gonna ask you one time to speak for Sam. Okay. <laughs> so 
and this is not really giving anything away because it doesn't impact the season that you guys were there, but mm -hmm. uh, Sam gets offered after the season the, the chance to become the manager of the team. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And did he discuss this with you? And was, this, uh, was he shocked when this happened? Were you sh surprised? And not really because we had, we had talked about one of us managing the team last year at a certain point when uh, things got to to the point where we just really wanted to not have any more interference. We, <laughs> we thought about just taking over ourselves, and we didn't end up doing that. We thought it would cause more problems than it would solve. But, but no, we had you know, talked about it so much during the season that it was something that was kind of in the back of our minds when the season ended. And you know, Sam was the more natural person to do it because he lives out there, and I had to move for the summer, and he didn't. So he was definitely tempted. Um, and I, I think he would have loved it. He said this was the best summer of his adult life, and so he would have liked to do it again, but he has a five-year-old and a wife, and uh, I think that probably would have been vetoed even if he had wanted to, <laughs> to do it, but it was just such a big investment of time that if there wasn't a book project to go with it, it just it wasn't something, you know, he took the summer off from, from his job, and so he probably couldn't do that again. So there were a lot of practical reasons why it wouldn't have worked, but he was definitely tempted. Um, so in your experience going through this, were there, you know, you had a, a group of players, you had coaches. Um, what was the approach like in terms of uh, getting to people who wouldn't be naturally kind of predisposed to accept a different perspective from the on-field one that they've been accustomed to? What worked for you, what didn't, what you learned from that? Yeah, I think it, it definitely helped if we had signed the player because then they were predisposed to like us. <laughs> if, we could t if we could tell them that they were at the top of the spreadsheet, like even if they didn't understand why they were on it, they were happy that they were on it, so they were willing to listen. With the returning players, it was harder because they had been there before we were there, and so they knew that they didn't need us, really. Um, and we were just kind of these carpetbaggers who came in and took over. And I think the key was kind of giving them some concrete, useful information. They weren't impressed that we were, you know, writers for Baseball Prospectus or whatever. That meant nothing to them. And so they were curious, I think, about what we were doing there and what we were going to offer. But at least for the first couple weeks of the season, we weren't really offering anything, you know, because we didn't have any information yet. So once we were able to show them video, uh, that helped because even though that's standard at the major league level, these guys had never had the benefit of that before. So it sort of showed them that we were putting in the work. I think that was a key to it too. We had to be there every day for hours and show them that you know we weren't just running numbers and then showing up at the ballpark and leaving or whatever. We were putting in as much work in a way as they were. And so we sort of earned our spot in the dugout, I guess. Uh, as opposed to just sort of seizing it. And when we could you know, show them their data and say you threw this hard today and your pitch moved this much and you were trying something new today and here's how it looked on this plot of pitches and they all thought that was cool and it was stuff that they hadn't had access to at any level before and so they were intrigued I think naturally and especially because they were just so far from the majors that they were willing to experiment, they were kind of desperate enough to, to listen to us. So, but it was also just sort of, you know, figuring out how to make things sound exciting and not just, you know, showing them a diagram or the numbers, but just saying we 
did X and Y, and it says that now we should try this, and this will be fun. No one's ever tried this before. You guys could be the first to do this. And they kind of got into the spirit of that a little bit, so that helped. No one else? All right, well, as we get towards the close of the podcast, I just want to thank you for something else, because okay. uh, I guess as we get to the close, I want to thank you for uh, opening my, my eyes. One of the things that I have, when I, I said earlier that I'm not completely in the sabermetric camp, we can get into this discussion <laughs> later, but uh, one of the, th the, the things that I have a problem with is when I see something on the field that looks very beautiful to me, when a major league ball player in particular does something, mm -hmm. it's like Picasso doing something on a canvas, it's just different. Yeah. And, uh, and sometimes I think to myself, well, the sabermetric guys, they don't see the game that way. Mm -hmm. But the reality is, it doesn't matter because uh, there's a line towards the end of this book, which I, it's only half of a sentence, mm -hmm. but I just want to read it because I thought it was, it, it was perfect and it really opened my eyes. There's no wrong way to love the game. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think that's exactly right. Yeah, I think all the stat people started the way that you did. I think you know we all started just watching the game and in appreciating it as a visual thing and emotional drama and all that. And then I think if you get into the stat stuff, it's just sort of another way of learning more about what you're watching and it's an expression of your affection for the game, really. Uh, so, you know, it's a, it's a slightly different take on it, but I think it starts from the same, same place. Well, that's a perfect last word to the book. The only rule is it has to work, published by Henry Holt and Company written by Ben Lindbergh and Sam Miller. Ben, thank you so much. Thank you.